0: It's Pastor Chad. Today is Sunday, September 12th, 2021. Welcome to The Way Radio Live, The Way R122 Ministry Live. Glad you guys are here. Uh Today's message is titled Jesus Christ and the Gates of Hell, and it's another in the series of the coming storm series of sermons. And uh, I'm excited to preach this one because we're going to be Uh, getting into uh, just a fascinating study in what the spiritual realm is all about, um, the battle that we engage in in the spiritual realm. And today what we're going to see is how Christ throughout his ministry was engaged in this battle and how everything he did in his ministry affected it in some way. Uh, again, if you can't hear or you have trouble with anything, please comment. I only see the comments if you're uh, watching on the Way Radio, on the Way Ministry Facebook page. Um, but let's pray, and we will get into today's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather here each Sunday, and to be able to uh, hear Your Word, to learn of You, and to feed on the word, which is our sustenance and our strength, especially in a time such as this, when there's so much chaos and confusion and so much tyranny being carried out around the world that threatens so many people. It is such a blessing to have the comfort of your word and the edification that it provides and the strength and the courage that it instills in us. So I just ask that you bless this message, that you bless each person that hears it, and that you would be honored and glorified through it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So again, the title of the message is Jesus Christ and the Gates of Hell. And before I get into it, I just wanted to um, call to mind a few of the events that have happened over the last week around the world and in America. Uh, Something that's, I think, been shocking people all over the world is, is what's going on in places like Australia, where the government is completely... Uh, gone off the deep end uh, in many places of that country and just uh, arresting people, locking them up in camps because of uh, saying they're doing it because they're protecting them uh, from COVID, which we have learned and we've seen over and over over the last 16, 17, 18 months uh, is not that much of a threat. It has a 99.7% survival rate. If it would have been handled correctly and intelligently and logically and scientifically from the beginning, this would have all been behind us. But it's become clear to anybody that's paying attention and thinking that there is a very sinister and evil agenda behind it. And then last week, uh, Biden came out and, uh, you know, tried to place mandates on every country in america with uh, 100 employees or more stating that uh, those companies must uh, either force those people their employees to get vaccinated or have them tested every week which uh, is completely illegal completely unconstitutional and uh, it's really idiotic uh, there's no way you're going to get every company with with 100 employees or more across the country to deal with just the, the logistics alone of testing people, verifying that they're vaccinated. Companies aren't in the business to do that. Companies are in business uh, to, to make money and to uh, grow and to support their families and to uh, provide work for their employees. So it's uh, completely unconstitutional, un-American, and it's evil what he's coming out with. And I just saw a headline or a, a blurb this morning from one of the news sources that I follow Stating that uh, he's going to have more measures that he's going to announce in the coming week. So what we're seeing through all this, and I'll be honest, I've had more hope and seen a brighter light at the end of the tunnel in the last week or so than I have in quite a while. And it's because Of Biden and those that he's working with to further this agenda to push tyrannical means and to maybe just usher in communism. I don't know what it is, uh, but it's very evil. Uh, I feel like they've overplayed their hand. It's becoming more and more obvious. Even those that have, you know, gone along with the COVID agenda since the beginning and been pro vaccine or and not paid attention to what's happening, they're starting to wake up. So the voice of opposition. Is rising, And we need to praise the Lord for that. So uh, if there's going to be an end to this anytime in the foreseeable future, the power to end it is in the people. And I see more and more people uh, waking up to that fact. And it's it's so heartening to see people uh, taken to the streets and marching in massive numbers all over the world uh, in protest against these draconian measures and these tyrannical leaders all over the world that are using this as a means to you know, either try to rush, it, rush, bring in the new world order uh, to bring in a new system uh, economically. It could be uh, a mix of all of those, but we just need to praise the Lord that that it does seem like the tide is turning, and it's turning because the side of evil seems to be overplaying its hand. Now, with that in mind, along those the thought of evil in the world, let's look at this fascinating portion of scripture and this sermon, which is entitled. Jesus Christ, and the gates of hell. And to preface this message, something I wanted to say was that everything Christ did, every word he spoke was filled with eternal meaning and purpose. To look, at the, to, look to the things that are unseen will help clarify and make sense of the things that are seen. To pay attention to what was happening during Christ's ministry in the unseen realm and the spiritual battle that was taking place will help us better understand those events and the things that Jesus taught taught and the things that he did. And it will help us also in our daily walk with Christ and in deciphering and discerning the things and understanding the things that are taking place in the world around us right, right now. And in this episode of, of Christ's ministry and his life that we're going to look at today, there was an intense spiritual battle taking place in the unseen realm during this event and all the events of Christ's ministry. So, to begin, it's based on Matthew 6, 13 through 20. So, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 6. And I'm just going to read verses 13 through 20 to get us started in this message today. Matthew 6, that we have a lot to study and a lot to learn. But what I'm really focusing on today is Jesus Christ and why he did what he did here and the place where he did it. I first want to look at Ephesians 6.12, which I refer to constantly in this series of sermons because it's very applicable to what I'm going to talk about today. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So anyone reading this scripture cannot deny that there is something going on in the spiritual realm, unseen realm around us, that very much affects what we are experiencing. That's why he says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is being affected by the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, this age in which we exist. And we wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And hopefully you'll understand more of what that means as we go through this message today. Now, let's look at Matthew 6.13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, just like I said at the beginning, Christ didn't do anything, say anything, act out anything that didn't have profound, important, and eternal meaning. And then why did Matthew be sure to include, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, why is that important? Why is it important that this event took place in the district of Caesarea Philippi? What does that signify? What was the importance of it taking place in that place? Now, what I want you to understand, first of all, is Caesarea Philippi was a mostly pagan city located close to Mount Hermon. It's about 25 25 miles north of Galilee. And throughout history... Uh, this area was known for the worship of Baal, the Greek god Pan, and the Roman emperor Augustus, which they believed was a reincarnation of an ancient god. So, this area surrounding Mount Hermon and Caesarea Philippi just sat on the, the slopes, the lower slopes of Mount Hermon. This region was known as a region of pagan occultic worship. I guess you could say it was known as being a very evil place down through history, and we'll learn more and more of why that is as we go forward. Now, first thing I want to do is show you a picture of Mount Hermon as it looks right now, and I'm sure it looked the same back then. So this is a photo of Mount Hermon. I'm not sure which direction this is looking at it. This could be from the area where Caesarea Philippi was located, but based on other maps that I've seen, I think that would be more to the right um, of this photo that we have on the screen. So that's a photo of Mount Hermon right now. And then the other thing I want you to look at is where Mount Hermon lies on the map in reference to Caesarea Philippi. So if you look on this screen here, and I'll make this larger for you. Here we go. In fact, I'll fill the screen with it. If you look up here, you see Mount Hermon. They've got snow on the top of it, colored in here. And then Caesarea Philippi, is right here. So it's just on the slopes of Mount Hermon here, or or, yeah, the slopes of Mount Hermon is where we see Caesarea Philippi. So this is where this event that we're studying in the life of Christ takes place, very close to Mount Hermon. And the other point I wanted to make was this area was also at the most northern extent of Christ's ministry. And that's something that I think I'll dive into in future sermons. But I want you to think of that. When you're studying the book of Revelation, you're studying eschatology. There's there's quite often we come across these portions of scripture that talk about an enemy coming from the north. And in our modern context, so many presume that that's China or Russia. One of those countries in the north that are going to play some role in the end times battle, usually usually an evil role. But with the context that we're looking at today, I want you to think of the people that were writing, like when John was writing Revelation, the biblical writers at the time, when they were writing about an enemy from the north, it tends to make sense to me. It seems to make great sense to me that they could have very well been talking about the area of Mount Hermon because historically that had been known as a place where evil, you could say, was spawned or poured forth from. And you'll see more of what I'm talking about as I get into this today. But the question that I'm really trying to address is why did this event that we're going to look at today, and then an event shortly thereafter where Christ rebukes Peter because Peter tells him that he shouldn't be going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And, and he says, get thou behind me, Satan. And then not long after that, the transfiguration take place, most likely either in this close vicinity or actually on Mount Hermon, those three very important events. The profession of Peter, the Christ is the Son of God that we read it, that we're studying today. The rebuking of Peter, where he says, Get thou behind me, Satan. And then the transfiguration, where, where he appeared to that inner circle of his apostles and they saw him manifested in his glory, transfigured in his glory. And the Father spoke from heaven. He was there with Elijah and Moses. And the Father said, This is my Son. Listen to him. Why did they happen in the area? in which it is believed they happen, which was probably either on or near Mount Hermon. Now let's look at verses 14 and 15. Uh, Here we go. And they said, some say, so he's, he's asking them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they respond, it says, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So those in the world, those that weren't in his inner circle, his disciple, there was much speculation because Jesus's reputation had grown by this time. He was becoming very well known. There was a lot of animosity from the Jewish leadership against him. People wanted to be near him because they knew he was known for healing. So he was like this 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 person that everybody was being drawn to for different reasons. So Christ just asked them, who do they say that I am? Some thought he was John the Baptist reincarnated or Elijah reincarnated or Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. But he wanted to know, who do you say that I am? And that's very important because the you in this sentence is plural and it's representing the 12 apostles that are right there before him the confession of who Christ truly is sets believers apart from the world and the myriad of false religions and false Christs that are in the world. So he wanted to know who they said that he was because they had been blessed to see and to know who who Christ truly was. They were separated from the world at this point. He was showing them who he truly was and that stays the same down through history into our current time who a believer is going to say who Christ is is much different than who someone in the world who is not a believer says Christ is you see or someone in a false religion and that's why it's so important to understand the gospel message as thoroughly as possible and the major points of it because that is how we be, we build we create discern or not we create we're blessed with discernment to see the difference between false teachings and the true teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mormons, it says right on their church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But when you look at what they believe, you look at what the Book of Mormon writes about Christ and the false gospel that it presents, you realize that the, Christ, the Jesus Christ, that, whose name is on their churches, never existed. He's a false Christ that is leading millions astray and into destruction. The same thing with every other false religion. There's only one true Christ. That's why John 14, 6 is so important. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's why knowing his true name, his true identity is so important. And we can only learn that through Scripture, through the revealing of the, and the Holy Spirit revealing that to us. Now, let's look at Simon's reply here, or Peter's reply in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. So everybody out there saying he could be John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets reincarnated and come back. Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So he who he's referring to is the Messiah and the king prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus said the law and the prophets speak of me. You search the scriptures, he is in the scriptures. He is the fulfillment of all that the prophets down through history spoke of. Everything in history pointed to Christ. And that's the statement that Peter's making: the ultimate true confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Look at Matthew 3:17 and Matthew 17:5. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew seventeen five. he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Matthew three seventeen, the father speaks from heaven at the baptism of the son. And in Matthew 17, 5, the father speaks from heaven at the transfiguration of the son. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's the confession that Peter makes here. Now in 1617, Jesus responds to him, and Jesus answered him and tells Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. As only Christ the Son can reveal the Father, so also the Father reveals the Son to those whom he has chosen. Matthew eleven twenty seven 27 says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So the point that Jesus is making to Peter is in his flesh, naturally born, without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, he nor any other human being, can know who the Son is because the Son is only revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, those whom God chose before the foundation of the world, the ones that Christ came to save. Jesus continues in verse 18, Matthew 16, 18. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is one of the most contested verses in scripture. The Reformation Study Bible and its commentary says, if it had not been for the abuse of this passage by the Roman Catholic Church, it is unlikely that any doubt would have arisen that the reference is to Peter. The thing that fascinates me about this is the majority of just about every commentary, every interpretation, every opinion— of what this verse means, doesn't include the whole picture. And you'll see what I mean as we go forward. There's common interpretations of what is meant here. When Jesus, when, Peter, when Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Common interpretations look at the name Peter, or in Greek, Petros, which means rock. Petra also means rock. So there's a play on words here. and This is where much of the confusion came in. Roman Catholics look at this as Christ was referring to Peter as the rock upon which he would build his church. But let's look at these different interpretations, and then you'll see why what I'm going to talk about today, I think, puts a foundation under the correct ones. First, Peter having Christ the Messiah revealed to him by the Father represents all of the apostles. Peter's confession is the rock upon which the church is built. I would agree with both of those. Peter, having Christ the Messiah revealed to him by the Father, represents all of the apostles. The apostles are a type of rock or foundation that the church is built on. Peter's confession is the rock upon which the church is built. Peter and the other 11 apostles are the foundation because they receive and relay new covenant revelation. So the reason you can refer to them from the foundation is because Christ commissioned them first of all with that message of the gospel that would start the church. So they could be looked at very clearly as the foundation. Now let's look at some verses that help back up that statement. Ephesians 2:20-21 Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he's talking about the 12 apostles. And when he's talking about prophets, he's talking about the messianic prophets all down through history up until John the Baptist, because the law and the prophets were until John. Now, again, to pick on Mormonism again, I remember a person I knew that came out of Mormonism showed me a, book, a Bible that he'd gotten, a New King, a King James Version that the Mormons had changed. And in theirs, it said, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Now, why would they do that? Because where it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, it's referring, it's pointing to those 12 apostles and the prophets. If you take out the, it leaves apostles and prophets open-ended, meaning there could still be apostles and there could be prophets, which there are not. There were 12 apostles, specially commissioned by, by the Lord, and there were the prophets that were messianic in nature, leading up to the time of John the Baptist. And that's why I said the law and the prophets were until John. Every word of scripture is important. If you say built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, you leave it wide open. People could use that to justify being a modern age prophet. Joseph Smith tried to do that to start the Mormon Mormon church. He was a false prophet. But if they put the in front of it, he's negated because it's referring to the, the prophets up until John. So you see the importance of proper interpretation and understanding of Scripture. But we continue, Ephesians 3, 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In Revelation 21:14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and of them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So I believe that you could very much say that one way to view the rock that the church is built on, the rock foundation would be the apostles, the 12 apostles. I think scripture attests to that. Another way to look at it is to say that all believers are living stones or rocks. And we see that in 1 Peter 2, 4-8. through As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So in this verse, we see Christ being referred to as a stone and a rock. And we see believers being referred to as living stones, being built up as a spiritual house. So I believe that all believers can be considered living stones, living rocks, upon which the church is built as well. So I think what you're starting to see is there's multiple ways to see this that all basically make the same point, because believers are what? The body of Christ. So you're still referring to that same rock. Christ is the rock. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He's talking about the Exodus. They were following Christ thousands of years before his incarnation. And also, again, in 1 Peter 2, 4, 8 from above that I referred to. The same point. <clears throat> so we see these different interpretations of rock. And I'll get into what the, the Roman Catholics, how they have corrupted this a little bit further on. I believe all of the interpretations that I've just looked at are confirmed biblically. But the one I really wanted to focus on today, and the reason I'm excited to really start getting into these kind of topics is because I believe they help us understand so much more clearly what's going on in the world. And the sad thing is these are things that have been neglected or just forgotten or never even talked about by so much of the church for years. Something that is almost never considered in the modern church but would have been very familiar now this is very important what i'm going to talk about would have been very familiar to jews during the time of christ is the context of the cosmic geography of the locations of these events in jesus's life the reason i call it cosmic geography is because there are certain areas in the world that have a profound meaning and a profound purpose in the spiritual realm. And I think that's what you're going to see is the case with Mount Hermon. And it will make what Christ did in this area area, seem so much more amazing and profound. And it really just adds another punch to our Bible study. The location of Caesarea Philippi and Christ's reference to the gates of hell provides fascinating context for understanding the rock Christ is referring to. So think of that. He said, this is the rock upon which I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We just saw that in verse 18. So I'm going to repeat my last sentence. The location of Caesarea Philippi and Christ's reference to the gates of hell provides fascinating context for understanding the rock Christ is referring to. Caesarea Philippi, as I stated earlier, was located at the foot of Mount Hermon in the area known in the Old Testament as the region of Bashan, or the place of the serpent. So you could look at it synonymously. Mount Hermon is considered the region of Bashan, or it's in the region of Bashan. And the region of Bashan was known in those times as the place of the serpent. So Bashan can be interpreted as serpent. Now the serpent, or in ancient Hebrew, the word Nakash from the Garden of Eden became Lord of the Dead after rebelling against God in Eden. So if you look at the original Hebrew where it talks about the serpent coming and tempting Eve, he's known as Nakash. I think it's either the deceiver deceiver or accuser. So the place of the serpent, it's interesting that the serpent or Nakash from the Garden of Eden became lord of the dead after rebelling against God in Eden. And now we're looking at something called the place of the serpent and something within that area called the gates of hell. Bashan was considered to be the place where the gates of hell are located. That was very common knowledge during those times. One authority writing on this subject states, more than 20 temples have been surveyed on Mount Hermon and its environs. This is an unprecedented number in comparison with other regions of the Phoenician coast. They appear to be the ancient cult sites of the Mount Hermon population and represent the Canaanite Phoenician concept of open-air cult centers dedicated evidently to the celestial gods. Now remember that, celestial gods, what's he talking about there? And this will help clarify what he means by celestial gods. The extra-biblical but very important book of 1 Enoch that's quoted in the Bible in 2 Peter and Jude states that Mount Hermon was the place where the sons of God from Genesis 6 descended to earth to cohabit with human women, which ended up bringing about the Nephilim. Now, one point I want to make right here is I'm referring to an extra-biblical book. This book is called Enoch, and I'm referring to 1 Enoch here. Now I know in the modern church, especially in the Reformed camp, as soon as somebody hears you mention Enoch, they're saying, Well, that's extra biblical. We shouldn't pay attention to it. If it if it was important enough, it would have been in the canon of scripture. I'm not referring to it as a biblical book. Enoch, I believe, is very, very important because it helps us understand the mindset, the spiritual viewpoint the perspective and the context in in which the writers at this time were looking at the world, were understanding the world, and were viewing the Messiah. So first Enoch, if you study it very well, helps us get a better understanding of what the writers of Scripture were thinking, how they were looking at the world, because it's very different than the way we're looking at it. And remember a few weeks ago, I said, one of the biggest problems we have in the modern church is years and generations of denominationalism and humanism and viewpoints and presuppositions being placed on us that are so hard to escape from. So I'm trying to pull back those layers and books like like, like Enoch help us to do that. Now, I will tell you, having read the book of Enoch, that it has a beautiful presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It talks about the coming Messiah, God's plan of salvation. It in no way contradicts scripture. So I just want to say that as a preface before I get into this, so you don't judge what I'm going to share. So again, the extra biblical, but very important book of first Enoch. The, and again, it's quoted from scripture, second Peter and Jude. They both refer to, to that book. And I believe Paul might el- elsewhere also. So they were familiar with this book. It states that Mount Hermon was the place where the sons of God from Genesis 6 descended to earth to cohabit with human women, which ended up bringing about the Nephilim. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this portion from the book of Enoch because it helps us understand what Mount Hermon was all about. It says, And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, come, let us choose wives among the children of men and beget us children. And Simjaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear ye will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual, mutual imprecations, not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And they were in all 200 who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. So what Enoch is writing about there is the rebellion of a number of the sons of God, angels, who had made a conscious decision to go out of their created place, the order that they were placed in, in rebellion against God, and through what they are going to do is going to corrupt the human race. Now I'll back up what we just read in First Enoch, with scripture. Let's look at Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Nephilim are the giants that we read about Goliath and others in scripture. And if you really want to dig into this topic, you can go back into Greek mythology, the Titans. They all come back to this topic of the gods breeding with human women and giants being the result of that. So Nephilim is a giant. I believe the word is gigantes in, in uh, I think, Hebrew or Greek. I forget. Gigantus. Giants were real. There's evidence of them. They were the result of this union, this ungodly union, this unnatural union, a corruption of the DNA, which led to the creation of the Nephilim giants. Look at Joshua 12, 4 through 5. This again t- attests to what I'm saying. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, we could pretty much synonymous with Nephilim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrai. Notice this, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salika and all Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Macathites and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sion, king of Heshbon. So it's saying that Og, king of Bashan, was a remnant of the Rephaim. He was a half-breed, half-fallen angel, half-human, Og was. So the Bible talks about this in various places. And the reason I love this so much is it really helps you get a better picture, again, of what's going on that we're so unaware of. One thing that really struck me as I was, and I've been studying this now. I just, I'm in the middle of finishing up, I think, the fifth or sixth book that I've been going through over the last couple of months. Um, I'll send out a shout out to my sister. She was kind enough to buy me this collection of books that I needed to really start studying these topics six or seven months ago. And I've just been, uh, just, basically living in them every morning. Um, it's something I've been interested in for years, but I really just wanted to get into it because it does help your understanding. One thing I want you to look at as we envision this spiritual battle that's taking place, and especially the intensity of it that was taking place when Christ was 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 incarnate, when he was walking on the earth, the battle that he was engaged in. Look at this Psalm, Psalm 22, 11 through 14, with what I just talked about. This is a psalm, a prophecy basically of the suffering of the Messiah from the Psalms. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. So what I want you to think about here, whenever I read that scripture, what I remember is the three hours of darkness that came across the earth in the middle of the day when Christ was, was on the cross suffering. And in that darkness, Christ has the forces of evil just hounding him. He says, the strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Now, I think anybody that reads that would have to to agree that if you don't understand what Bashan means and refers to and symbolizes, it's going to be hard to figure out what he's talking about there. You might just think, well, maybe he's maybe there's 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 big bowls that they keep in Bashan. No, I believe he's talking about those evil forces in that area, Satan's soldiers, basically. That were going after Christ while he was suffering on the cross, and that's why it's one of the reasons why there was that three hours of darkness. So you're starting to see a little bit more of what I'm talking about. Or getting a little better idea of that spiritual warfare that really is. And I'm telling you from experience, the more you dive into this, the more the gospel the more power it gets, and the more clearly you can understand. <coughs> excuse me, what's going on in the world, because you understand the battle better, and you understand uh, our enemy better. Now, I want to backtrack a little bit to an earlier sermon, when I, <clears throat> that sermon that I preached a few months ago called The Invisible Realm, where I spoke about God's judgment on the rebellious angels. So we've heard about the angels that have made a conscious decision to rebel against God, come down to earth, mate with human women, corrupting the human genome in the process, creating these horrific giant Nephilim half-breed offspring, completely corrupting God's plan of creation. Now, with that in mind, look at Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So again, like I've spoken about before, what we have to understand is God has a council. And there is a hierarchy of command in the heavenly realm. God runs heaven much like the structure of an army. And these that were put in control or given positions of authority, the sons of God, went against God's commands, God's law, and God's natural creative order. That's why in Psalm 82, 1 through 8, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. Again, I refer to his counsel. In the midst of the gods, notice a small g, he holds judgment. Now this is God speaking to them. How long will you judge unjustly? They've been given responsibility and show partiality to the wicked. Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. This is how destructive their actions were. I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. And this is their sentence. Nevertheless. Like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. He inherits the nations through Jesus Christ, the victor. So, this is the sentence that was pronounced on these rebellious sons of God and their offspring, the Nephilim, the giants. Now, something that's interesting. I want you to look at a photo. I showed you a photo of Mount Hermon, what it looks like. And I want you to look at what it looks like now on the very top. This is the peak of Mount Hermon or one of the peaks. On the top of Mount Hermon is a UN base. Now the UN I've heard justifies their being there saying, well, because we have a base there, it helps us keep peace. You know, in these countries, we know what goes on in the Middle East and it gives us a, a vantage point to help keep peace in all these countries where there's always all this tension. But isn't it interesting that as you study this area, the area of Bashan, the place of the serpent, Mount Hermon, where these angels defected from their rightful place, their created order, and came down to corrupt the earth, isn't it fascinating that probably I would say one of the most evil organizations in the history of the world has a base at that same exact location. Because if you study the UN, they are a front for everything that we're trying to deal with today. The New World Order, a one world currency, everything. The UN is is a very evil organization. And isn't it interesting that they have a base on Mount Hermon? Just amazing. But to get back to the to the point of this, from the perspective of, of Christ being the victor. So knowing now all that you know about Mount Hermon, Bashan, the place of the serpent. And I'm believe me, I'm going to delve into this deeper and deeper in the coming weeks and months. There's so much that I've written down and been studying about this that I think I just want to share with you guys. I'm going to just go into this into, into minute detail if the Lord allows, if it's God's will and I'm just excited to do it. But regarding this instance today where Peter confesses Christ as the Son of God, Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, at the epicenter of the evil of this world, at the gates of hell, the gateway to the realm of the dead in Old Testament times. Now, with that being said, think about this, and this will give you a lot of energy and a lot of courage for what we're dealing with today. Gates are meant to be a defense. Jesus Christ was proclaiming to the forces of darkness that the gates of their fortress would not stand. Evil thought it had won at Calvary, but Christ's crucifixion and resurrection was his eternal victory and the eternal defeat of those in rebellion against God. The gates of hell are under assault by the message of the gospel, Of Jesus Christ. So when Christ says, On this rock, I'm going to build my church, I believe he was saying, On your confession, Peter, on the rock that you apostles represent, on the rock that my church is, on the rock that I am, and on this rock in this cosmic geographical location, I am going to establish my church because this is where the forces of evil think their power resides, and I'm going to demolish it, and their gates cannot stand against it he was throwing them down he was laying down what was going to happen right there just awesome and it's done through the assault of the gospel of Jesus Christ look at look at Matthew 16:19 He continues, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So again, this is one of the places where the Roman Catholic Church has terribly corrupted scripture. The Roman Catholic Church falsely teaches that the keys of the kingdom and the power to bind and loose on earth and heaven were given to Peter as the first pope and to the succession of popes Since Peter. The reason the Roman Catholic Church cannot veer away from their false teaching on these portions of scripture, claiming that Peter is the rock, meaning he is the pope, and every pope since him holds that power, holds the kings to the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom, and possesses the power to either bind or loose on heaven and earth. If they ever give up that confession, which is false, their whole religion crumbles because in truth, the Pope is powerless. Any power that the Pope has is evil. He's been working against the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's why the Protestant Reformation came about. The truth of the scripture is that the elect the children of God in Jesus Christ have been given the keys to the kingdom and the power to bind and loose on heaven and earth through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. What he's talking about here is the power that we have, as believers have when we preach the gospel to the world. And I'll give you another picture of that in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 2, 15-17, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ." When we preach the gospel, it may be the condemnation of the hearer because he is not chosen to understand it. He is death unto death. But that same gospel message will reach somebody that is God's elect, chosen, and that is the message that they need to hear, and it is life unto life to them. So what we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven. You're starting to see the power of this battle that Christ was engaged in and that we are still engaged in. (coughs) Excuse me. And he is with us. And the last verse we're looking at today is perfect for closing Matthew 16, 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ because he wanted it proclaimed at the right time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for your word, for your truth. And Lord, I just ask that you enable everybody that hears this message to have a better understanding of the battle that you are engaged in and the battle you're still engaged in and the victory that you won on Calvary. And that in the midst of all the darkness and the confusion and the chaos and the lies and the evil of this world, that we would in no way be drugged down by it, but we would be encouraged and strengthened by your word in such a, a, a way and so powerfully that we would stand bolder and bolder against everything that's contrary to you. Lord, please open our minds and our hearts to discern your truth, to stay on the narrow path, and to honor you as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here today, you guys. I appreciate it. If you can, please consider visiting elephantwalk.net. It is our sponsor company carrying in every step reflected in the quality of our products and the efforts to combat poverty and support wildlife conservation that our sales help support if you type the way all lowercase at checkout you get 10 percent off um so please visit elephantwalk.net if you'd like to visit the website you can find us at the way r122.org you can find the podcast at christianpodcastcommunity.org or it should be available on just about any podcast service now or app. Just type The Way Radio in the search field if you go to christianpodcastcommunity.org. Uh, YouTube, I think we're pretty much about kicked off there after the last few sermons. So just find us on Rumble. Just search The Way, R122. Please consider donating to the ministry. We need a lot of help right now. You can do so by going to The Way, the letter R122.org. Our ministry in Kenya continues to grow. I am really hoping to begin planning my next trip as soon as possible. And we've got a lot of new opportunities that have opened up there in just the last week or so. And as those come to fruition, I will share them with you guys. Uh, But please consider helping us. Uh, We need as many people as we can to partner with us uh, so we can just move forward in the cause of the gospel. All right, thank you so much. We'll be back here next week, same time, same place. God bless you guys, bye-bye.